So we're, we're starting right now in, in Philippians chapter 4. And today's Bible study is called The Godliness of Gentleness. The Godliness of Gentleness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak powerfully to us. Lord, we want to be a church that's faithful to you and your word. We want to be a church that's willing to just repent and say that we're wrong all the time. But Lord, we want to trust you more and more. I pray you'd help us to trust the words that we hear today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the most remarkable things about this whole Jordan going... If you didn't know, Jordan had appendicitis last Friday, a week ago Friday. So it's been like eight days, nine days now. And... uh, so that was shocking in and of itself, you know, we didn't know what was going on, and then all of a sudden, get to the emergency room, appendix coming out, it was like an alarm. I don't know where I got that idea. It was alarming, oh, that would have been so much better. You're, you're, you're well taught in the ways of the pun. Okay. So we were there, and, and this lady comes in, come in, and her, she's a child life specialist. You guys ever heard of one of these child life specialists? They're, they're like, um, they come in just to make your child feel like comfortable, and, and she walks in the door. First, this is her knock. We were like, was that a knock, or did I like burp really quiet? And then she opens the door, she's like, Hello. Jordan's like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> Hello, I would like to talk to you. And he's like, this lady's cool. So she comes in, she talks to him about getting an IV and all the different things. Well, we went back to the hospital this week because he, he was throwing up and we needed to go back in. And she was there again and she remembered him. And this time he brought his stitch um, stuffy. And, and so they actually gave, like, an IV to the stuffy for, like, afterwards because and, and he wanted to do that. And she was so, okay, so this is what we're going to do. Do you want to do it? And he's like, yeah. So, man, it was so cool. She was so calm and gentle. And she, she explained things and she comforted as she was explaining. I was just kind of blown away after she was done. I was like, thank you. I feel calm now. <laughs> It looked like this guy I know named Jesus, All right? Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. I'm going to start off the sermon with the Spurgeon quote today. Spurgeon said, Born as he was amidst the acclamation of angels, reverenced by strangers from a distant land, foretold by seers and prophets, one marvels that he, as a bright, peculiar star, didn't shine forth. But instead, for 30 years, he retires to the workshop of Joseph and is there patiently occupied with his father's business. So in other words, Jesus could have been popular and famous, and he could have forced his way, and he could have been like, I'm Jesus, look at me roar. But he didn't. He just worked in his dad's shop for 30 years. That's amazing. Now let's look at Matthew. Before we even get, or excuse me, Mark. Before we even get started in Philippians, I want to read to you Mark. Because this shows what Jesus was like, what, what he kind of looked like, what his, Mark chapter 10, verse 13, what it was like to be around him. 
13 through 16. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Jesus knew how to be gentle. Kids get scared pretty easy, don't they? I mean, sometimes I walk around the corner and go, Wah! to my kids, and they just die. They're just like, oh my gosh, I thought you were a giant baby, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> he knew how to take kids up in his arms in a way that didn't seem to scare them to death, this Jesus guy. I mean, they might have even known that he was almighty God and creator of everything, the one who would judge their very soul, the one who could cast them into hell or carry them to heaven. If they only knew that that was the one that was holding them, it might be a little bit scary. But Jesus had something about him that invited people, even the most humblest of people, children, to draw near to connect. And the crazy thing is, he still has that quality today. And that special quality or ability is in you. Because Jesus is in you. He is alive and, and he dwells in you. And as you surrender to the leading of his spirit, he will cause you to be just as gentle as he was. Isn't that crazy? Now we get to our verse, our text for today, which is Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The word for gentleness in the Greek is, uh, could be used, could be also translated fair or mild, or equitable. But he says here, it's your gentleness. What we're going to talk about today has already been given to you. This isn't something you have to try to figure out how to be. You, it, it, it's just hidden under millions of layers of self-sourced ambition. But it's there for every true believer. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is. David Guzak is one of the best pastors in America. And his commentary is on blueletterbible.com. If you're ever studying and you want to really get into stuff, you go look at what David Guzak says. You're going to find a lot of truth, a lot of help. He says here, this word describes the heart of a person who lets the Lord fight his battles. They know that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's in Romans 12, 19. It describes a person who is really free to let go of his anxieties and all the things that cause him stress because he knows that the Lord will take up his cause. I'm going to repeat that. It describes a person who is really free to just let go of all his anxieties and all the things that cause him stress because he knows that the Lord will take up his cause. Question time. 
Do you let the Lord fight your battles? Or do you stress out about them? Or maybe the real question is, do you think he would really fight your battles if you let him? So it's kind of, the real question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? This, this idea that we're talking about today, this gentleness, is a very commonly taught message in the Bible. Let's look at a few of the areas where it's mentioned and expand our understanding of this word. If you want to know what the Bible means when it says something, you look at what the Bible says about what you're thinking about. Um, it's a great way. These are called doing word studies. And a great tool for this, if you guys are on your own and you want to, oh, I want to learn about um, circumcision. Then you open up Strong's or Vine's concordances and dictionaries, and you, and you dig and you find out where the Bible uses it. You look at all of them, you kind of survey all the verses, and you see if the Lord doesn't open your understanding of what that is about, what that talks about. We're going to do that right now. So the first verse we're going to look at is 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. This is one of the areas where this word gentleness is used. He says, It should not be given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome and not covetous. Here he's talking about the qualifications for a spiritual leader. And he says here, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy, but gentle, not quarrelsome and not covetousness. Given to wine means that you're wanting to escape your problems. So you give in to wine. You drink to escape whatever you don't want to feel or go through at the moment. Violent means you want to force your way. That's your desire. That's how you want to get things done. You want to force your way. Greedy for money is wanting to increase your quality of life and your financial security. Quarrelsome means you like to control other people and you're willing to argue about it. Covetous, you want what others have. But he throws right in the middle of all these bad things, he throws the word gentleness because gentleness is the opposite of each one of these things. If you're given to wine, you're wanting to escape your problems. Gentleness is willing to endure and accept hardships. Isn't that interesting? Violence is wanting to force your way, but gentleness is willing to be patient with people and use love and serving as a way to influence them. Greedy for money is wanting to increase your quality of life and your financial security, whereas gentleness will accept the position they're in as the exact place that God wants them to be at any moment. Quarrelsome means you want to control other people, but gentleness will allow others the dignity of making their own decisions while ministering truth and grace to them at the same time. You can see that gentleness has a lot of similarities to faith. It's kind of like a description of faith lived out. And it kind of sounds like this guy I know, Jesus. Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon quote. 
Number two, Jesus, Spurgeon said, Jesus was meekly quiet, neither striving nor crying nor causing his voice to be heard in the streets. When the time has come for him to appear in public, he goes quietly to the banks of the Jordan River, where John is baptizing a multitude in the river. And he doesn't press forward and claim to be the Baptist's immediate attention, but he waits till all the people have been baptized. And then he tells John that he desires to be baptized by him. That's the gentleness of Jesus. The next verse we're going to look at is Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Titus chapter 3, verse 2, another pastoral epistle, another one of these letters that Paul writes to a Christian leader, Titus. And he's given him instruction here. He says, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceful, gentle, and showing all humility to all men. So here we have, to speak evil of no one means to hope for their demise or sorrow or their hurt, or to talk about their failures or weaknesses. But he says, rather, you should be humility. You should be humble, have humility, which is genuinely considering others before or better than yourself. And that also sounds like this guy I know, Jesus. Spurgeon quote number three. One more Spurgeon quote for you guys. Ready? The zeal of God's house had eaten him up. Yet he went quietly into the wilderness and afterward to Cana and Capernaum and the more remote spots by the sea. He did not need the excitement from the outside world to maintain the fires of his zeal. And there was an inexhaustible fount of fire within. Therefore, he was ardent but not noisy. Intense, but not clamorous. His first labors were very private, and his kingdom came not with observation. That means that Jesus didn't freak out. He didn't have to worry about how the world was going to receive him. He didn't make a plan to go right into the busiest place and stand on a soapbox and yell at people. He did things the way his father does things, which is very gently, calmly. He waited for the Lord to open doors. And he was just fine spending time in quiet. How many of you hate quietness? BK is the only one. No, just kidding. Um, When you're a parent, you learn to love silence. Sometimes we play the game, the silent game, right? Let's see how long, and we need to get better at that game. <laughs> Jesus had, was just fine in silence. He was cool with it. He, he would hang out with you, and then what didn't feel like he was trying to get you to do something. He was just like, hey, how you been? You don't want to talk? All right, cool. Let's just sit here. I'm cool with that. James chapter 3, verse 17 is our next verse. James chapter 3, verse 17. 
But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, and without partiality or without hypocrisy. So James says here it's wise to be gentle, to live with this faith in God to fight your battles. I see people who want to fight their own battles, and honestly, I'm grieved in my heart. They have not learned wisdom yet. They are foolish, according to the word of God. You can't control your life. You can't control other people's lives. You can only do one of two things. Trust God with it, or try to take control back of your life and try to control other people's lives. Those are the only two ways we can go. You have to let it go. And I mercifully am sparing you the let it go song. I was... But you've heard, let go and let God, right? You've heard that? That's hard. It takes faith. It takes real trust and and brokenness. It's a good thing. That's how we live with gentleness. We have to stop fighting and let go. Okay, you're going to act that way? All right. I'm still going to love you. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to serve you and love you in, in Jesus' name. Yes, you are an idiot, but I will love you anyway. And it will not even cool the passion of my love. I will keep loving you because I'm not loving you because you're cool. I'm loving you because God has told me to love you. And I love God because God first loved me. That's how a Christian lives. We have to stop fighting. Like politics, man. How many of you just hate politics? It's like, we all are like, are you serious? This is what our world is right now? It's awful. But nowhere in the Bible does it say democracy is the only way to thrive as a Christian. You know, there's a big portion of the church that thinks democracy is biblical. That's not true. Is it good? It can be. But is it something that we need to freak out about and fight for? Ask the Christians who lived in the 1776 years before America existed. And they mostly lived in totalitarian systems with little or no rights, and they did just fine loving Jesus. And showing him to the world. Just fine. Were they rich? Probably not, most of them. The government is not greater than the church. I've talked about it several times, but you know the church in China right now is thriving. There are more Christians in China than people in America. Over 10% of China is believers, which is bigger than America. 300 million. Okay? So, and 
all this huge church out there filled with God's Spirit, you know how big the movement is to abolish China's government? It's not there. They don't care. Why don't they care? Because the light shines brighter in the darker place. They're doing just fine. Do some of them have to suffer? Yes. But guess what? They know the truth. That to suffer is something you rejoice about as a Christian. We have forgotten that in America. We think that we need to fight for our political stances. And it is not the way Jesus would handle any of this. We are not scared of the government. How many of you honestly, don't raise your hands, just in your own heart, are scared of what's going to happen in this election? We don't need to control the government. We don't need to control them. We don't need to be in power because our God already is. And gentleness rules God's kingdom here on earth. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you gently love people. Do the people on the other side of you politically know how gentle you are? Do they see your unwavering trust in Jesus? Or do they see you trying as hard as they are to gain control? Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. He says, be known to all men. What does that mean? It's how we should treat all men, and there are no exceptions. Not if they treat you poorly, not if they hate you, not if they want to kill you, tax you, rip you off, control you. It doesn't matter. Well, I don't want us to have a government that steals my stuff. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, the Lord is at hand. This is interesting. Look in your Bible because there's a period and then another sentence. The Lord is at hand. Well, in the Greek, this is all one sentence. It didn't make sense in English, but in Greek, this is all the central focus of the reason why you have gentleness is this idea of the Lord being near. This is one sentence in Greek. God is near to those who will put themselves in his care, who will trust him. He doesn't always change the pain or the circumstances. Just ask the Chinese Christians. But he promises his presence and grace. Ask the Chinese Christians. They live with God's presence. They know his presence. And we do too. He doesn't always change it, but he wants to use you to be a light to the world. And the light shines brighter, where? In the dark, right? The American dream is not really compatible with serving the kingdom of God. And this is his kingdom, and it's really all about his kingdom here. So what does that mean? 
The reason we can act with gentleness, the reason that I say that you already have this in you, is because of our relationship to God. Deep inside, we want to be where he is when we're believers. We want to do what he would do. We want to make our master happy. His kingdom is in our hearts and it's on our hearts. We want it more than we want prosperity or anything else. And so gentleness puts us near to his heart, his will, and his blessing. This is this desire that's inside us, placed there by the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus was cool going and working in a carpenter shop for 30 years, when he could have been saving people for 30 years, doing more important Jesus stuff. But no, he decided, ah, I'll just trust the Lord. I don't need to be famous. I don't need to be powerful. I just need to be obedient. So what does it look like to be gentle to all men? In Luke chapter 6, we've got to turn there to see this. Luke chapter 6, verses 29 through 35. Jesus gives us a really clear description of what gentleness looks like. And this always rocks our world every time we read it. Luke 6, 29. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, do also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. And then from Matthew, we have a very similar thing, but I want to read that one as well. Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Matthew five thirty-nine. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So there it is. Physical violence, theft, unfair treatment, lazy, entitled, living off your kindness people are all included here. We have no right to not be gentle to every human being. The best description of godly gentleness is right here. And it's not, I'm going to call the cops on you. 
I'm going to call my lawyer. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to hold a grudge and be resentful. What keeps us from being gentle to all men? Wow, lots of answers. And they're all right. But the real answer is, (laughs) just kidding, worry and fear. What if they take advantage of me? (gasps) What if they take my stuff? What if I get hurt? What if I can't be happy anymore? Jesus knew this, and so he addressed it in a few places. And he is so good to help us to find the right way. He wants us to be rewarded. He wants us to live a life that matters, that glorifies God and builds up God's kingdom. And so he tells us, your problem is going to be worry and fear. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then Luke chapter 12. This is one of the best scriptures, the most encouraging and and wonderful scriptures to read whenever you're worried. Go to Luke chapter 12. That's just your, your prescription for worry. You're freaking out about anything in life. Go to Luke 12 and read it. Specifically, Luke 12, verse 22 through 30. It says, then he said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor weep, reap, <laughs> weep, which have neither storehouse nor barn and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider, he says, consider, think about the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, period. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. The difference between the world, the nations of the world, and you is your father. Who's their father? Satan. What's his purpose? To steal, kill, and destroy. How does he accomplish it? By lying. Who's my father? God. What's his purpose? To bless me and save me. And how does he accomplish it? By truth. Grace and truth in my life. I don't think Jesus could be any more clear. We are not to worry. Worry causes us to leave gentleness behind. There's this deep internal gentleness that lives in the heart of every believer. They just believe that God will deliver them. 
They just know that God is their father and they really can't imagine their father not giving them what they need. The flesh and the enemy, they plant these seeds of thought that God won't give you what you need. But the spirit is constantly witnessing to us and teaching us that he will give, that he will provide. That's what grace is. It's giving. That's the language of grace, gift. He always wants to give his grace. And it will always be provided by Jesus Christ himself. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, just a couple verses down from there. Do not fear, little flock. I love when he calls us little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God has a desire And that desire is to give. It's the whole main idea of grace. Again, it's the language of grace, give. And if God desires something, it's not like he doesn't get his way. He does all that he wants. He's sovereign. God wants to supply your need as a father. He wants to partner with you in his kingdom. So he says, I will save people around you if you pray. I will partner with you. I'm not just going to go around acting outside of your, your partnership. I love you. I want you to be involved in what I'm doing. So pray. He actually wants to entrust his kingdom to us. Here it says he wants to give it to us. You think of God's kingdom. You think of, oh, nothing is ever wrong. and There's glory and might and power. Ah. Oh. God wants you to have that. You to be a part of it. He wants to see us take ownership of the kingdom through love and gentleness. So we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the kingdom didn't come to us by us, but it was given to us by the power of God and his love only. That's why it's all set up this way. You will inherit the kingdom. You will get it. You will be used by God. And it will not be from you being a jerk to people. It will not be from you trying. It will be a gift given to you. Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. The Lord and his kingdom are at hand. They are, that means near in the Bible, that term at hand. I looked it up this week. It means so close, both of them. They're they're perfectly linked and inseparable, indivisible, like interwoven. They're, they're, They're like one, the Lord and his kingdom. So what should we focus on? How can we make sure that gentleness is our disposition and our attitude so that we can can be see the kingdom happening in our lives? I mean, God's like, I'll give you the kingdom. I'll save your neighbors. I'll save your family. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. The kingdom is yours because you're a child of God. Well, how do I make sure that I get that? The kingdom of God in my my life because I want it now. Matthew 3, 2 says, I'll read it to you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at Hand. Matthew 4.17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 
The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Every time that Jesus mentions the kingdom and the nearness of the kingdom, he directs us, he gives us instruction how you can be a part of it, and that is to try harder. No, that's not what he said, right? Go to Bible college. No, no, no. Repent. Repent. Freely admit how you fail. Agree with him on the rightness of his word and the wrongness of you and your intentions. That's the key to being near to him, near to his kingdom, seeing the kingdom advanced in your own life. I'm not good. I'm not right. I'm not sufficient. I'm not smart. And I spelled it S-M-R-T in my notes. <laughs> so instead of depending on me and my abilities, I'm going to turn and believe your word instead. That's what repent is. There is no one righteous, but you can freely receive his free help and grace for all that you need through Jesus Christ. That's the great way to repent, is just fully, freely saying, I am so messed up, but you have promised me things. You've promised me your kingdom. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. That's what our verse says. Okay, I want to be like this, but how can I get it? I understand repent, okay, repent. But how do I, how do I reach out and li- grasp it with my hand? This kingdom, this, how do I let gentleness just soak in and come out of me? How do I become a gentle person? Because I'm not a gentle person. Matthew eleven twenty nine. You got to see this one. This should be highlighted in your Bible. If it's not, minus 10 Jesus points. <laughs> Plus 10 Jesus points for you. Just for nothing. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a great verse, right? Yoke with Jesus. You want gentleness to abound in your life? Yoke up to Jesus. That means connect with him and never let go. Draw near and attach yourself to him. Do that through prayer and reading the word so you can follow him closely. In Matthew 12, it says, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he shall not quench, till he sends forth judgment unto victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. Jesus is the gentle one. And he says, come and yoke up next to me. Now, if you're curious as to what it means to yoke up with Jesus, come to anchor groups this week because we're going to discuss that. We're just going to talk about it and see what 
insight the Lord has given each person. And we'll see what we can kind of come up with is how to yoke with Jesus. So I'm not even going to tell you what that means right now because I want you to think. No cheap answers here. But Jesus, man, he, he's, it says a bruised reed he will not break. But what that means is that, you know, those uh, cattails or like reeds that grow by water, when it, when it, when it, you, you kind of break one, it just kind of flops over. And it's still connected, but it's just so super floppy over, and it never comes back. And it almost seems pointless to try to get it to come back straight because it's bruised right there. It's like it's, it's lost its firmness, its stiffness. And any normal person would just say, oh, that's a, a worthless reed now. It's a worthless cattail because the, the ones floppy over, just, they're, they're worthless. But Jesus says here, I will not break the bruised reed. In other words, he takes that reed, he holds it up, and he lovingly, gently ministers to it until it's strong again. How many of you have been that bruised reed? Where you just like, every person in this world looked at you and were like, pointless. Why would I give my time to that person? They're a waste of my time. They just are floppy over. So it's, Jesus isn't like that. I think one of the greatest parts of gentleness is that you can look at someone, no matter who they are, and value them. You can love them. Even the difficult people, and I'm not making any excuses for how dumb people are, and how difficult people are, and how much sin they have in their life. We don't accept sin. We don't say, oh, it's fine for you to just be... No. We minister to them and believe in their value. We believe in their value. That God loves them, and so we will love them more than we love our stuff, more than we love our comfort, more than we love our jobs, more than we love anything. We will love people. Every person. No matter how annoying they are, we will love them. We will love them. Even if you're married to them. <laughs> Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon quote. Number four. This is a four Spurgeon quote sermon. It's got to be worth something. His design was not to be the idol of the people. In other words, Jesus didn't want to be American Idol. But to break their idols and lead their hearts back to God. Therefore, he did not strive, nor cry, nor run the world's race, nor battle in her wars. No violence has been employed in the spread of the gospel. No carnal weapon has ever been lifted to promote the Messiah's reign. He does not strive nor cry. When Muhammad would spread his religion, he would bade his disciples to arm themselves and go and cry aloud in every street and offer to men the alternative to become believers in the prophet or to die. Jesus just dies. And if we want to be used by him, we need to do the same thing. The solution to ISIS isn't bombs. 
It's not war. It's Christians being willing to walk over there and be slaughtered in love. Willing to give their life and pray for these people. They're real people and God loves them. He's given his son for them. But 99.9% of Christians in America value our life more than we value theirs. How do I get God's kingdom to flow in my life? Repent. Repent. Say, I don't own my life. God, you own my life. If you want people to treat me bad, if you want people to kill me, God, you own my life. What can I say? Of course, I don't want to be tortured and die. Who does? But I love God. And I want to do his will. And I want to read his word and believe it. We can treat ISIS with gentleness. That's like the one like, that hits everybody. Oh, ISIS. And if we would love them, we could win them. There you have it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you, God, for your love. And Lord, there's nothing in this life that matters as much as following you and knowing you and serving you. And I thank you, God, that we can, we can come and we don't have to like get our fires stoked by some emotional sermon or some crazy music. Lord, but we can really just come to know you and come to connect with you and hear your word and that your Holy Spirit will stoke those fires in our heart for us. We don't have to fake being excited about you and your word. Lord, we just come to you and repent. And Lord, you fill us with new desires. You work out the desires of our heart. And Lord, you bless us with so much.